Hey guys, my name is Jordan Koss. Welcome to the Almost Essential Podcast. This 16-episode series is based off my final project for my Doctorate of Ministry degree at Fuller Theological Seminary. The title of that final project is Almost Essential Evangelists, Improving Retirement Asset Accumulation for Mainstream Church of Christ Pastors. In this series, we will interview eight different specialists in eight separate episodes. And we will also interview two pastors from each of eight different regions around the U.S. This final project was inspired by 10 years of ministry in three different churches of Christ from Georgia to Northern California from 2010 to 2019, as well as my time as a financial professional in training in 2020. That is where I learned about the retirement crisis America is in and will be experiencing in the coming years. Now, I have three goals for this podcast. One, provide an accessible, denomination-specific qualitative conversation for Church of Christ pastors and leaders. Two, introduce leaders and listeners to retirement vehicles and strategies they may not have heard about before. And three, provide encouragement, motivation, and knowledge to save for the last third of life. Thank you for listening and enjoy. All right. Welcome, guys. Once again, this is episode two of the Almost Essential podcast. This is part of the final project I'm doing uh, at Fuller Theological Seminary, our practice component of that. And so we are going to creating 16 separate episodes talking about the subject of retirement. And this is episode number two. I have my co-host with me, Lars. Lars, why don't you say a few words about yourself? Yeah. So I get to uh, be not only a friend with Jordan as we've done a podcast uh, before on youth ministry, but now mm-hmm. get to be the co-host of this as I kind of lean into the pastor accountant hat that I wear. I got my undergraduate in accounting from Northwest Christian University, now Bushnell University, where I serve as church relations director. And so bringing to bear some of that idea of the intersection of uh, finance, accounting, and um, and what it means to be a pastor and serving in this calling uh, as we we discern, all of us are called to serve God in some unique way. So I'm glad to be on this journey and get to ask a few thoughtful questions and um, continue a really fruitful friendship that uh, Jordan and I have had as we think about the third third of our lives in retirement. Wow. Um, I've got yeah. some practical things uh, online here with just how I'm thinking about my own retirement. So grateful to learn from people like uh, our guest today, John Mark Hicks, and mm-hmm. um also think together. So grateful yeah. to be on the journey. Yes, our uh, special guest today is the the one, the only John Mark Hicks. And so John, say a few words about yourself for our viewers who are not uh, familiar with you. Well, I think I need to disclaim the one and only right now. But, uh, <laughs> my, my name is John Mark Hicks, and uh, I'm a professor of theology at Lipscomb University. I've been teaching in higher education among institutions associated with churches of christ for well since 1982 mm-hmm. so over 40 years and i'm about to retire myself so yeah okay. i'll be retired this time 12 months from now i will be awesome. in retirement great and great, great. i'm looking forward to that um done some publishing and speaking in different places i have six grandkids okay and uh, five living children um 
So I married a wonderful woman named Jennifer. So glad to be here. Thank you for the invitation. All right. Yes. Glad you are here. So the basic uh, gist of my final project is I'm taking the argument from Teresa Ghilarducci's book, uh, Rescuing Retirement, where she says America is experiencing a DIY retirement crisis. The main uh, cause of that and culprit of that is an over-reliance upon traditional retirement vehicles like the 401k, which she highlights as the main cause of this crisis, where these traditional retirement vehicles, because of our over-reliance, they don't work. She says it's been a 40-year experiment and it's been a 40-year failure. And so a majority of Americans uh, have these traditional retirement vehicles. And as a result, they don't have enough money that la- that will last throughout retirement. And retirement for people is lasting longer because they're living longer, among other reasons. Now, Church of Christ Pastors, which this study uh, I've focused on in the study and final project, they seem to be a microcosm of that DIY retirement crisis because James Knapp and his two studies on Church of Christ Pastors in Texas and, and nationally saw, saw in his findings that Church of Christ Pastors had an over-reliance upon Social Security and IRAs. That's the only retirement income that over 50% of his participants in both studies were going to draw from in retirement is income. And so basically this podcast is going to serve as somewhat of a, you know, room where it happens discussion for all uh, pastors, whether you're in churches of Christ, for church leaders, church of Christ or not, whatever denomination you are in. We hope that this conversation about retirement and preparing for the last third of life is helpful for you. And so with that, uh, John, um, I focused uh, my historical exploration in terms of why Church of Christ pastors might be an, a microcosm of this DIY retirement crisis and struggle with accumulating assets for retirement, I focused in that historical exploration on how the pastor system controversy within the Stone-Campbell movement uh, might have affected their retirement asset accumulation. Now, you talk about this in your book, Searching for the Pattern. And you write about the blueprint hermeneutic that led to the opposition of located and salaried preachers, uh, pastors, in the non-institutional controversy in the mid-20th century. Can you, first of all, kind of explain what you mean by blueprint hermeneutic? Yes, a a blueprint hermeneutic is a way of reading the Bible that expects to find a clear prescribed institutional blueprint or pattern for the governance, polity, and worship of the church, Mm -hmm. whether it's there explicitly or implicitly. So we read the Bible looking for the institutional parameters. Read the Bible trying to figure out, okay, how is the church supposed to be organized? What are we supposed to do when we gather together? What are the boundaries of that? What are the limits of that? And we figure that out by explicit language or implicit language. We infer uh, certain aspects of the pattern because it's incomplete just at the explicit level. So we infer to fill in the holes and we come up with an idealized this is what the church is supposed to look like. These are the marks of the church. And whatever congregation doesn't have these marks, then they are deficient and need correction. Okay. Okay. And so try to help us understand how did this blueprint hermeneutic uh, bring about and lead to the rejection of located and salaried pastors 
uh, in the Stone Camel movement in your experience and study? Yeah. Well, in Churches of Christ or in the Stone Camel movement, um, trying to find that pattern. What is the pattern of church life? What yeah. is the pattern of church governance? And so what was discovered uh, by some was, well, we have a pattern of elders and we have a pattern of deacons mm-hmm. and we have evangelists. Right. Uh, we have apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors, teachers, right? Yeah, okay. In Ephesians 4. So um, trying to figure out, okay, how does how does that congregational life flourish under its leadership? So oh. elders were identified as the leaders of the congregation. Mm-hmm. Now, these, these congregational elders could be paid. There was nothing un, improper about that because we see that um, you know, this was part of what was happening in First Timothy chapter five, and the deacons are part of that community. The real question comes with the evangelist: Is the evangelist the same thing as a pastor? And in Stone Campbell movement early on, and particularly in Churches of Christ, the evangelist is not a pastor. Okay. Uh, the pastor is a local governor, a local person who mm-hmm. lives in the life of the congregation the evangelist by the very designation evangelist is one who who evangelizes mm-hmm. one who's out preaching the gospel who is planting churches who stays with the churches long enough to get them up and running uh, so they can operate on their own so he's uh, the, the the evangelist is an itinerant sort of person okay and when i say they pastor, have a home bay yeah when i yeah, say pastor when i say pastor that's equivalent of the evangelist in that early movement, correct? Yeah. yeah. Well, the modern day pastor who is, let's put it, uh, the hired hand kind yeah. of thing, you know, the one who is hired to shepherd the congregation or to participate in the life of the congregation and lead the congregation. Yeah, that um, that is what um, I'm describing as the evangelist. Right. But the evangelist, according to the pattern in the New Testament, so it was understood right uh was not that (laughs) right was not that congregational leader the Mm -hmm. evangelist was one who may be connected to the congregation but the focus of the evangelist was always outside it was always about itinerant preaching and church planting and moving in different regions Uh, the local church was cared for by the elders or shepherds or pastors so this was part of the controversy we didn't want to call the evangelist a pastor yeah yeah and then the next step then is we don't want to we don't want to hire the evangelist to be a pastor Uh which is which is the objectionable point in the history of this discussion right you don't hire an evangelist to be a pastor a pastor needs to be one who knows the congregation has has been a part of the congregation is a um, a functioning member of the congregation, mm-hmm. not someone who comes from the outside and is hired to do a, a task. Right. So the problem then is you don't see that pastor system in the New Testament. Yeah. yeah it, it's not there. Mm-hmm. And if you have a blueprint I- ideology or a blueprint hermeneutic, if it's not there, at least according to this version of blueprint, if it's not there, it's not authorized. Yeah. 
And if it's not authorized, you don't do it. And so you don't violate the pattern. You keep the, you keep the jobs in their categories. You know, elders or pastors, uh, deacons and evangelists. Right. Okay. And so we, we had talked about this before uh, we started our recording. Um, I did not realize, and I think many don't realize, that opposition to located and salaried evangelists slash pastors was one of the top three controversies in the early movement that then even stayed around and stuck around in the 20th century that kind of caused the non-institutional controversy. Um, Can you help our audience understand why it was such a big deal? Well, it had, well, there's several dimensions to it. Right. Uh, First of all, I think that the big three would have been missionary societies, instrumental music and located pastors. Yeah. Are located in pastor slash evangelists, yeah. and all that's in the late 19th century. That's like mm-hmm. the 1970s to 1900. Uh, those three were kind of the operative mess <laughs> that yeah. that generated that generated a division, right? Right, right. So, um, why would the located pastor become such a problem? Yeah. Well, first of all, I mean, first of all, it's it's about the blueprint. Okay. Mm-hmm. Where is it in the blueprint? And, mm-hmm. and now we're going to engage in a debate about what does it mean uh, mm-hmm. to be a pastor and what does it mean to be evangelist and what are the examples that we have and what are the inferences we can draw? So that's one thing. And I think another thing, um, and, I, and I think it might be even more, I don't know if it's more important, but it's certainly substantial. Mm-hmm. And that is um, the idea of hiring a pastor who comes in and does the job of a pastor right. has a, uh, an effect upon the congregation to transfer the workload to the pastor Okay. so that there's, there's lower participation. There's lower mm-hmm. responsibility. Okay. We kind of put things on to the, uh, to the hired person. And so there's less participation. Sure. There's less accountability and less responsibility. And we get into a mode where, okay, I come here and I give my money and the, and the pastor does the work. Yeah. And, and so that, that theological notion that it subverts the priesthood of believers and mm-hmm. that it dilutes, dilutes the power of, of the community, yeah. it dilutes the responsibility of the community. Mm-hmm. I think that was as much a driving force mm-hmm. as the other. Now, mm-hmm. I think there's also some subplots, and that is yeah. uh, economic, sure. um, the ability to hire a minister. Yeah. That was not, you know, that was always a problem. Yeah. It still is, right? And, yeah. 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 And David so, Edwin Harrell yeah, yeah. writes about that. The, yeah, uh, the, yeah. Kind of the poverty of some mm-hmm. of the churches. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's, you know, you just don't have that opportunity. It's not right. there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also there's also this elitism and the status kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. That is a part of the sociology of it. Right. And there's another theological. The yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And I think there's another theological point, and that is the danger of hired pastor becoming clergy. And by clergy, I don't mean, you know, just that we have a hired pastor. I mean, clergy in the sense that, OK, this is the person who handles the sacraments. Mm-hmm. This is the person who does the baptizing. Right. This is the person who presides over the table. This is the preserved person who presides over the assembly. 
And when you get a clerical understanding, uh, in, you know, as a part of this uh, uh, pastor system, then it again devalues the priesthood of all believers, and it uh, reduces and even subverts. So the argument goes, it would subvert um, the call and the invitation of all believers to participate, you know, to do the baptizing. I know when I was growing up, most of the time my dad, who was the preacher, did the baptizing. I mean, it was pretty rare that he didn't do the baptizing. Uh, now, it's not as common today. You know, today, parents and friends and disciples, they do the baptizing for the most part, in my experience. But Back then, you know, back when I was growing up, that became kind of a pastoral role. It became kind of a clergy role. Mm -hmm. You let the preacher do the baptizing, you know. So I think there were people in the 19th century and early 20th century who saw the danger in that and, and did not want the hired minister, didn't want a hired minister to take on that kind of Right. So okay. I, I had a couple of questions for you um, regarding where some of these things maybe overlap in my experience one would be as you're searching for the pattern we use that term inference um there was always that word necessary inference when i was sure. taught it um so you know as i as i think about it the churches of christ and the stone campbell movement don't come out of nowhere they're right. reacting many ways um depending on how you locate the beginnings but to presbyterian Ism um, to denominationalism, as we would we would call mm -hmm. it now, um, and they're doing some necessary inferences in here. Yeah. And I'm I'm curious for you uh, if if you can locate kind of the key one, the hinge necessary inference that maybe they're making uh, that leads to this pastor, or I, maybe it's connected to that priesthood of all believers. I'm not sure. Um, but in those movements that they come out of, uh, the Scottish Reformation and the, those kind of things, there was a pretty high clergy, um, yeah. at least in that side of things. Yeah. And uh, I'd be, you know, my dad used to say it was kind of if it smells Catholic, it's bad. <laughs> Maybe that's the inference that yeah. I'm, I'm poking at. But I'd be curious what you think it it maybe comes out of. Yeah, that I think clericalism is a major uh, issue to confront mm -hmm. here. Uh, right. uh, and I think that that was the one that brought, that Campbell emphasized that, for example. Yeah. He railed against the clerics and the elites and the, mm -hmm. and the, the wealthy ministers, you know, who, mm -hmm. who are um, feeding off the people, that kind of thing. So much like we might, I mean, some people might today look at celebrity pastors and, you know, sure. televangelist or whatever, and, and say something very similar about their their celebrity status and their monetary status, and and how uh, they are drawing a living off of the poor, that sort of thing. But yeah, I think we do have we have strong roots in Presbyterianism. In fact, the whole mm -hmm. notion of command, example, and inference comes from the regulative principle in the Reformed tradition. It was something the Westminster divines debated when they wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's the Puritans used this. So we didn't invent this method. We just applied it in a democratic way, uh, you might say, on the frontier of America with uh, particular issues in front of us. Um, 
So I think the necessary inference, um, or what we might say in reverse, is what the text implies. That's mm -hmm. we're going to infer what it implies. Now, that's where the necessary comes from. But okay. whether we actually infer what it implies, you know, yeah. is a whole yeah. other question. We well, brought up the democratic thing. Yeah. So that was yeah. my second thing, and then we can move on, Jordan. So pick your yeah. you know, sure. question you want to move on with, but I'll just. Um, on that democratic thing because <laughs> my um my thought about how elderships are often elected at least in the my experience mm -hmm. been um kind of a uh you know an election of the elder and then it's almost a mix with the supreme court where they're on for life um mm -hmm. so there's kind of this interesting uh marriage at least within the non-instrumental churches of yeah. christ that i've served that uh that feels very, very american in its democracy um and so I'd be curious if if you see that playing in to um, a force, if you will, underlying kind of uh, the even what we're talking about with the DIY retirement actually comes a lot from how culture is influencing the church, not the church influencing culture. And um, mm -hmm. so as you kind of think about the democracy and the obsession, at least within kind of the Campbellite side of the restoration movement with American democracy, how does that play into the pastor, kind of the resistance of the pastor evangelist? Um, yeah. Well, I think this is where the priesthood of all believers can be democratized, right? In terms of the sociological context, mm -hmm. uh, to hear about, okay, we're in, we're independent congregations, mm -hmm. make our own decisions, we choose our own people, you know, yeah. um, that we have local power, not hierarchical power, mm -hmm. not not um, cross-denominational power, but local. So I think that 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 sense of populism, um, kind of the populist understanding of democracy, is very much synced with the kind of autonomous sense of the congregation right. and its own right to choose its leaders, mm -hmm. to choose its elders, mm -hmm. uh, and you know. I think uh, that 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 is very local in in the beginning, uh, and it's very, I would say, it's not regulated well in yeah. terms of choosing elders. It's mm. a matter of Lipscomb was an elder because he was just a natural leader, and mm -hmm. and people recognized him as an elder, even though he didn't have any living children. Right, he he was recognized as a. Uh, a leader just out of the context of his his presence in the congregation. Well, we get into the election of elders more is when J.W. McGarvey wrote his book on eldership. Mm -hmm. And that became the standard, okay, we've got to have a plurality of elders, okay. and this is a method of selecting elders. And you know that became kind of programmatic and based upon kind of a blueprint reading of the New Testament. Yeah. Okay. So with, Cam you know, the word that comes to mind is deconstruction. Alexander Campbell kind of deconstructed where he came from, from Presbyterianism, kind of kind of recreated an ecclesiology that was thought to be very unique in the American, what it would seem the American context. And so did his deconstruction, the well-intended kind of setting up evangelist pastors for financial hardship from the start with this reconstructed ecclesiology that almost seemed to like pit elders versus evangelists. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, that's a good question. Um, certainly, Campbell's Campbell was iconoclastic. Mm-hmm. He he rejected what he perceived as the the hierarchy of clergy and the subsidizing of clergy on the backs of the congregations without input from the congregation. Uh, so he was really rebelling against, you know, power and control, yeah. and the abuse of, of of money. Now, when you when you rail against that, sometimes you you can create an overreaction, right? Yeah, and yeah. and I think maybe we can say that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think Campbell himself would have said that, yeah, local elders are to be supported. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. And that the evangelist should be supported as well. Right. It's just that we don't move the evangelist into the life of the congregation as yeah. as the local pastor. Right. Uh, and I think that would be true. For example, for David Lipscomb, David Lipscomb uh, was an elder in his congregation, and he served it without pay, without being salaried. But he insisted that the evangelist ought to be. Um, salary they ought to have money they ought to be supported in their in their ministry and so i don't know if there was ever a problem of under supporting as much as it was um let the congregation live on its own and let it support those who are out planting churches and missionaries so you know he supported missionaries uh he supported african-american missionaries he supported international missionaries uh, from that congregation, so I'm not, I'm not sure that it would be necessarily fair to say that it undercut the support of the evangelist, but it did, um, as you might bring up later, uh, it certainly idealized the sacrifices of the evangelist, the sacrifices that an evangelist makes, uh, and it made them kind of heroes. Uh, for their choices of poverty, uh, their choice of, of doing this, even though they're not supported very well. And, you know, even in Christian college, in the beginning of Christian colleges, and maybe even now as well, you know, you, you take less pay because you're doing a good work, right? Uh, and that's valued and idealized. Um, and if you, if you buck up against that, uh, then your your sense of sacrifice can be challenged, uh, that you're not really sacrificing for the cause. Uh, mm-hmm. You ought to be willing to, to take less and to be paid less and, mm-hmm. and to endure the sacrifices for the sake of the kingdom. Okay. All right. You know, here's, let me give you an illustration of that. You know, my father, uh, we went to a, a place in Texas. Um, my father moved from Virginia back to Texas to be close to family. We only stayed six months, and here's why. When we got there, he was promised a a certain salary. uh, And when he he expected that my mother could find a teaching job and that that the church would help him until she found something. And and finally, you know, he said, well, I can't make it anymore. You know, I need I need to I need you to help me out here. And they had a lot of money in the bank. I mean, they, they had saved her a rainy day. And they refused to help him. Okay. And they said the contribution's not coming in, but you know it's not high enough. And he said, "Well, let me let me. I'll tell you what. If you you tithe ten percent more 
than you are doing now, and I'll tie ten percent more than I'm doing now, and then we'll get this thing fixed. And they were, you know, wasn't willing to do that, huh. and and they thought that he was. Um, they thought he wasn't committed to the kingdom mm. because he wasn't willing to sacrifice the needs of his family. Mm-hmm. That's a problem. Yeah, that, that is a problem, especially when the needs of the church are well taken care of, and there are people sitting around that table who themselves are are making money beyond their needs. Mm-hmm. And this is the theological principle that I think has to come into play. That okay. that when we're talking about the support of evangelists and support of located ministers, um, that within the body, there should be no need. Mm-hmm. No one should have need mm-hmm. within the body. And that applies to every member as well as the evangelist. Okay. So if a congregation is going to take on the responsibility and ask a person to serve them, and in serving them, they, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, you know, they deserve uh, remuneration for that. And if okay. a congregation is going to ask them to serve them with, with uh, for remuneration, then it needs to be the kind of remuneration that meets the need. Right. Otherwise, it fails the test of, of 2 Corinthians 9, Okay. Uh, for 2 Corinthians 8. Some have too little and some have too much. It's supposed to be nobody has too little and nobody has too much, but everybody has what they need. No, it's good. And if I'm going to, as a congregation, hire somebody on to serve the needs of the congregation, which I don't think is inappropriate at all, it need the, the congregation must have the commitment to provide what is needed right. for the person that has. Okay. And that need includes retirement. That was going to be my follow up comment and, and question there too so you know some of the experiences we've uncovered and talked about already um have been that it's not just enough to cover the needs today uh, to be well taken care of but to be thinking about uh the future and to be thinking about retirement and, and how many times uh what we're left with is that is an an individual decision. And so back to your conversation about autonomous congregations, some of the things we're observing is that this ranges wildly from no contribution help with retirement to um, almost kind of a, that's not a good thing to be doing, Mm. um, whether it's education around social security and opting out Mm. um, or, or other, other pieces around uh, parsonages and and minister housing allowance and things. To where yeah, we absolutely. don't not help them, but in fact we're sending them negative messaging. Um, mm-hmm. We're actually, you know, disenfranchising them for for uh, for the future and for retirement. Do you mm-hmm. see any sort of plays within Church of Christ um, theology or um, you know, kind of history that might even lend itself to kind of a negative view of retirement in general, like mm. of saving up That's because good we're actually, um, you know, we're meant for heaven. Um, and yeah. there's kind of a, a focus on the afterlife. Do, do you see that at all at play with the search for the pattern, the blueprint? Is there kind of a resistance against retirement in general? Well, you know, I think that's a, that's a really that's a good question. And I'm not, not, I'm not exactly sure. I, I do mm-hmm. think that there are threads mm-hmm. that play into an underplaying of retirement. Mm-hmm. 
that is a thread like you ought to be in the kingdom service till you die and uh, you should never get out of it. Right. Uh, there's there are threads like um, uh, looking at wealth is always bad. Yeah, you know, it's a bad, bad thing to have wealth. Um, that and that sense of sacrifice that I was talking mm-hmm. about a little while ago, I think that plays into a kind of an apocalyptic worldview mm-hmm. uh, as well. So I think there are some threads, mm-hmm. but but I think I would want to counter that with a with with a theology that says. If I am, if I've covenanted with a person to serve the community in a particular way, to meet their needs, then I think my conception of their needs needs to also be a, needs to include when I no longer want their services because they're too old and they don't have a good memory. Do I have any responsibility for them? Mm-hmm. Do I have any responsibility to help them prepare for that? When they are no no longer able to work, or they no longer have the memory to work, or they have they're incapacitated in some way, disability, mm-hmm. uh, does the church who covenants with the person have responsibility to um, to at least not only be aware of that, but also to act to prepare people for that, whether it's financially or preparing them uh, educationally. Uh, and to be a partner in that future. In other words, do we partner with, with the minister only in the now? Mm-hmm. Or do we have a long view of how we're partnering with the minister? Yeah. And I think that, you know, my, my experience in Churches of Christ um, with my father was mm-hmm. when he retired, he retired on Social Security and yeah. whatever he could put away for IRA. But he, did, mm-hmm. he lived in parsonages most of his life. Yeah. He was not given any equity for that. He mm-hmm. was not given any. Um, so he had no, he had no other resource, no yeah. other land. Yeah. I'd say, right? Mm-hmm. right. He had no other tangible mm-hmm. property other than what was in the IRA and what was in social security. And for, you know, that was the common practice was the parsonage, you know, the preacher's mm-hmm. home. Yeah. That, that uh, was, very helpful to some places, you know, and some places so expensive to live in the church. Um, but but I, even that needs to be mitigated. But anyway, um, when we treat the minister that way and we advise him to opt out of Social Security on the front end. Right. We've just we've just impoverished. Mm-hmm. We have we have really taken a family and their generational wealth and said. Uh, you're going to die a pauper, you know, Yeah, yeah. trying to survive on Social Security. And I think church has to take responsibility for that. We, we need to be educators about it, which is why I'm glad I'm, y'all are doing what you're doing. We need to be mm-hmm. educators. And, and we need to be people who um, serve the needs of those whom we hire, not only the present needs, but anticipating the future needs as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, and you were talking about the the minister as a hired hand almost. Um, and that has manifested itself, at least in my experience, as eldership is almost passing down this uh, culture of suspicion mm. of the minister, of the, of the preaching minister, that the elders become the protection of the of the flock against the the wolf in sheep's clothing. And um, and that yeah. where we we want to actually be caring for them. And not just when they're useful to us, right? And I think right. that culture of suspicion can almost drive 
that usefulness and they're only useful yeah. to us now. And mm-hmm. um, so I appreciate you you talking a little bit about that because I think as we want to share this with elderships too, we're, we're hoping that they kind of shift their imagination from kind of protectionism um, and suspicion to care and um, and how retirement is part of that care for the whole soul. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, Jordan, the I fundamental, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, oh, I interrupted you. I you know at a fundamental neighbor, a fundamental level is about loving your neighbor. Yeah. And if I'm going to enter into covenant with a person, how do I love my neighbor in this mm-hmm. covenant I'm making with this person? Yeah. And uh, uh, that has to root out suspicion. I mean, so the dynamics you're talking about, Lars, that dynamic is clearly there. Uh, yeah. Suspicion of one another, protecting our power, protecting our, our, you know, we could put it in terms of flock, but yeah. protecting our power base. Mm-hmm. what we a lot of, a lot of us do right Lars, your question reminds me of lisa keister's findings she's a sociologist at duke she wrote uh one study uh conservative protestants and wealth how uh conservative protestants which includes churches of christ are asset poor including retirement and their views of retirement they have a negative view of retirement they have a negative view of wealth like you're saying and as a result uh they do not among other factors they do not uh, go into retirement with enough assets and so her conclusion is they need to start saving like others in terms of accumulating assets better to prepare for retirement etc but uh, that was a great discussion and so it, just ultimately before we segue into the second half of this interview um, part of me just was like looking at Church of Christ and seeing like, you know, the nature of Church of Christ seems to be DIY and has the DIY nature of Church of Christ and somehow uh, exacerbated the experience of pastors in terms of how they experience the DIY, um, American DIY retirement crisis right now. And I don't know if there's a few words how you want to perhaps answer that before we go into the next second half. Would, would you explain DIY just the D- for a brief Yeah, moment? the DIY American retirement crisis. Uh, Gil Ducci says DIY because the shift from pension, the 401k, the shift from the pension where the employer has a responsibility okay. to provide for you the rest of life to now it's all the employee's responsibility with the 401k, that has kind of eradicated uh, a significant portion of savings that would l- help somebody that would last and give them income throughout retirement. So that's where the DIY nature of the retirement crisis and verbiage comes from okay. in her words. So if I'm hearing that well, and I may not be, I mean, I misunderstand here. That's okay. It's it's the move from, from the company or the employer to mm-hmm. take responsibility for pension. Yeah. And it's moving it to the individual mm-hmm. who now takes his, his or her salary and is responsible for his or her own retirement. Right. Right. Is that mm-hmm. what you're talking about? That yeah, move? that's a that's a basic. And so when just... it comes to churches, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, when it comes to churches, I don't know we've ever had the pension. <laughs> we never had a no, pension we haven't. plan. No, right? we haven't. I mean, uh, so uh, and individual congregations, at least in my understanding of history, which on this particular issue might be very limited, mm-hmm. um, there's never been in churches of Christ some kind of broad pension plan. Right. Um, or the churches typically even did that. It was mm-hmm. always kind of on the responsibility of the mm-hmm. of the minister, which okay. is why we have we had in our history a lot of poor ministers yeah. in their retirement. Yeah. Right? Or they they continued to preach until they were you know eighty five, mm-hmm. right? mm-hmm. um, when they were possibly not really able to do that anymore. But yeah. 
so yeah, I think we're always been on that individualistic end of things. Okay. Yeah. And so one thing that was, and I'll mention this and we can move on, but one thing that was interesting, the, the one article that I could find in the Stone Campbell Movement Encyclopedia that was about retirement assets and ministers' retirement was the article about the pension fund of the Christian church, how that was created yeah, yeah. in the end of the 19th century for them. But I, what, I never even heard of that before doing this study. Right. I mean, that that would became a disciples thing. So it's not yeah. surprising in Churches of Christ we didn't know right. about it. But yeah, I think uh, I think you can opt into that. Uh, any Stone Campbell minister can opt into that, right? That's correct. That That's correct. True. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Great. Um, so let's let's uh, transition to some theology. We've touched on it already a little bit, um, but you discuss in your book "Embracing Creation" how Jesus and the Church frame their mission in terms of jubilee in the Nazareth Manifesto in Luke 4 and Peter's sermon in Acts 2. Can you help uh, explain what the Nazareth Manifesto is? Yes, this is just language to describe the event uh, in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus went to the synagogue in Nazareth, and he opened the scroll of Isaiah 61 and read, you know, the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor and to free the captives, etc., mm -hmm. uh, in the year of the Lord's favor. And when you read that language, um, it's jubilee language. In other words, Jesus is saying, my coming is a jubilee event. Um, and in this jubilee event, we want to forgive debts, and we want to release prisoners, and we want to um, well, and when John the Baptist sends his disciples that, hey, tell us what, are you really him? And yeah, the, the blind see and the lame walk and the, uh, the dead are raised and the poor have good news preached to them. So this is, when you think about what Jubilee is, Jubilee is that moment every 50 years, according to the Torah. Mm -hmm. We don't know if they ever practiced it, <laughs> of right. course, but it was, it was the time when uh, you released all the debts and you freed all the prisoners and everybody, everybody got a reboot, right? A redemptive reboot. Everybody went back to their original land. Uh, you know, the, the massive land owners would have to return the land to their, um, to the original families, mm -hmm. uh, which you can imagine the economic mess that would be right. But it would also, yeah. you know, what it does is it, 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 it prevents people from being hoarders mm. because if you know in 50 years, you got to give it back. Yeah. And, and that means they don't make um, deals with people that are oppressive mm -hmm. uh, or they don't, they don't send credit cards in the mail to grad to uh, undergraduate students uh, because now they can keep them in debt perpetually. Right. Um and they know every seven years, at least, they're going to have to forgive those debts. So, you, you know, you don't loan, you don't give out money that you are not going to get a return on in that sense. So, mm -hmm. yeah. but I'm, I'm going too far aside here. Okay. But the Jubilee is this freeing moment. And it's a this worldly idea. It's not just an otherworldly idea. The danger of, the, of listening to the Nazareth Manifesto or this call of Jesus out of the anointing of the spirit is to spiritualize it so that it becomes an otherworldly thing mm -hmm. only that it's only about the forgiveness of sins mm -hmm. that it's only about getting to heaven or it's only about what happens after you die or, or something like that. Yeah. But this is a very, this worldly 
manifesto. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, talking about prisoners and the oppressed and the poor. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it has spiritual dimensions. It brings mm-hmm. forgiveness for sure. Absolutely. That's part of it. Yeah. Uh, reconciliation between people groups. Absolutely. That's part of it. But yeah. it's also grounded in economics. It, it has economic meaning uh, as well as social meaning. Um, and I think that that's, that's the aspect that uh, most people in the church as a whole are not quite willing to grab hold of. That, yeah, we will, we will say spiritual, absolutely. You know, we'll go with the spiritual stuff. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. That's yeah. great. Mm-hmm. But the economic stuff, that's a little, that's demanding yeah. on our economics, on yeah. our own personal economics. Let's let, let's if go I'm there. one who has too much. Yeah. Go, okay. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, leading into that next question yeah. was, can you unpack? Because you mentioned part of that jubilee Nazareth manifesto ethic is this social reality of a new economic. What does that mean? Unpack mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Well, let me unpack it first of all in the context of of a community of faith. What is that? What does the Nazareth manifesto look like in a community of faith? Right. All right. So I think I think that Paul articulated it in Second Corinthians eight when he says that some do not have too much and some do not have too little. That there's some kind of economic equity. Uh, it's not to say that some won't have more than others. It's not the point. The point is everybody has what they need, mm-hmm. and in a, in a community of faith, there should be no poor among us. Right. Which goes back to Deuteronomy 15. There should yeah. be no poor among you. Mm-hmm. And then in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, as they had need, so that there were no needy among them. Yeah. No one had need. So part of the, the, the manifesto is in a jubilee community, no one has need. Yeah. And I'm willing to sell what I have so mm-hmm. that the other person doesn't have need. Mm-hmm. Now, it's a different economic system, you know. Um, so in a capitalist society, I have capital that I can supply needs with. Yeah. Um, but there might be occasions when I sell a car so I can supply a need. I've seen that done um, and in my own experience. So that's the new economic reality in the community of faith. Okay. Thank you. Lars, did you have something that you wanted to ask? Yeah. Well, I, so, I mean, this this to me comes back to this individual what I'm calling the American influence, the, you know, the elephant in the room. And unfortunately, I kind of think it lines up with the elephant um, in our political <laughs> sphere, too, to some degree. And I'm not I'm not saying that churches of Christ are all in general on the political right. But I think my wonder for you, as you think about this, how do we speak this without just automatically becoming well, you're just uh, socialists or right. you're yeah. just, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, trumpeting a, a political left uh, argument here. Um, you're yeah. describing in many ways what I think of as more of a middle of the road approach. Um, but I, I I can imagine hearing some of my elders and some of the people I know, and we may even get into this, how uh, many people who are speaking in the Christian thing about retirement are almost kind of coming from this very capitalist, um, conservative view of money 
and mm-hmm. uh, and free market and all of that is speaking into this DIY and it's actually creating more problems than mm-hmm. benefits. But for the few people, right. they are rising to the top and they are riding the wave. And and so it can be very easy for us and and for church leaders to buy into that. Well, what the actual problem is not, um, you know, they, they almost want to double down on the capitalist market and free market economics. And I'm, I'm curious how you might speak to them without triggering, um, uh, you know, <laughs> socialist, you know, just getting labeled as a socialist. Yeah. I don't know that I can do that. <laughs> I think I'm good. I think I'm going to get labeled. Um, but what I, what, what I would do is I would just, you know, if, if, if my shepherds have a strong blueprint sense, that's an advantage because I can go to the Bible with this brothers, you know, yeah, I can, I can go to Acts two and Acts four and I can talk about somebody not having too much and somebody not having too little and everybody has what they need. And yeah. I can talk about that in terms of your covenant with a minister that you're going to supply this minister's needs. Yeah. Is that what you're, you're going to do? And are you willing to sacrifice to supply the needs of this minister, the needs of his family, the needs of the future of this family? Um, but yeah, it is a social reality. Now, I'm not going to use the word socialism because I know that's a trigger word. Yeah. And I know that it means different things to different people. And when I use the word, I'm probably not even using it in the same way that they're hearing it. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. But it is communal. It is communal. Mm-hmm. And the communal dimension of the church, that's what we are. We are a community. that We call ourselves a family. We call ourselves brothers and sisters. And families take care of each other and do good to everyone, but especially the household of faith. We got to start with the household of faith. We got to start with our own communities that we meet the needs of our community. And that includes our ministers and that includes their retirement um, as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But you, I would expand that out at a social level, but but I would begin with the community of faith. Okay. Now you've already okay. kind of okay, yeah, you already kind of touched on this, but uh Brueggemann in his book The Land talks about in the mass urban society, everyone must have the social economic equivalent of land. Do you think retirement mm-hmm. income in our context today is the and is is that aspect of land? And um yeah, so that's that's the basic yeah. question. Yeah, I think in Israel, it's an agrarian society, of course. Land is premium. That's why Jubilee is about land, returning mm-hmm. land, mm-hmm. resting land. Um, and land is you know, what we are charged to, to care for and have rule over and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's a theological strain there. Okay, But in urbanization, land is not available. Right. So we we quantify wealth in a different way in a mm-hmm. capitalist society, and mm-hmm. and so I think it is legitimate to make that move. Okay. That in Jubilee, people return to their land. They always had a they always had an asset, you know, yeah. uh, something to serve God with, something to live that where they could flourish in life, mm-hmm. and flourish as human beings and serve the kingdom of God. Yeah. Well. well I think that's what reti- retirement is supposed to enable us to do, mm-hmm. to to have an asset where we can flourish and serve the kingdom of God. Yeah. And that asset can be capital. 
mm-hmm. uh, and, and not just land, right? Right. It right. might be both, but mm-hmm. you know, um, but for a lot of ministers, it's usually only capital, especially those who only yeah. serve churches that had a person. Like right. my father, my father, when my father retired, he had Social Security, and that was about it. Okay. He had no, yeah, he certainly had no land, no property. <laughs> yeah. My dad didn't own a house. I don't think my dad owned a house for 45 years or something like that. Wow. He never owned a house after, after about when he was in his 20s. Okay. Yeah. Okay. He sold his, he sold his, he sold his farm to become a minister. Wow. I never had land again. Wow. Very cool. That's, that's great. Um, so one of the things Gilbert Ducci says is that retirement wealth inequality is worse than income inequality in America. And so my question to get your opinion is, is the Nazareth Manifesto, is the Jubilee politic and ethic a good place to start to address this injustice for both pastors and everybody in America? Yeah. Yeah, when, it, when we use the word inequality, I think that needs some definition. Yeah, um, okay. We don't, we don't, we don't use, I don't think we want to say inequality means, uh, or to, to address inequality means that everybody has the same income. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Everybody had the same size piece of land in right. Israel. Sure. It was about families and, and need, right? Mm-hmm. So I think when I'm thinking about equality of income or equality of retirement, I'm thinking, okay, in your situation where you live, what your context is, and the ways that you're going to serve as a, as a retired person, do you have what you need? And that needs to be equally true yeah. of everyone okay. so that everyone has what they need. Some may have more, some may have less, but nobody has too much and nobody has too little. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the basic principle. Paul drew that from the manna, right? Mm-hmm. In Second Corinthians eight, he's drawing on the story of the manna in Exodus, um, and he thinks that that still applies. I mean, that storyline still is at work, and it's the same sort of storyline as Jubilee is. Um, okay. Nobody has too little. Nobody has too much. Okay, got it. But, but everybody can return to their asset. They have asset. They have an asset mm-hmm. that they can use to 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 flourish, gotcha. and uh, and by flourishing to fulfill the mission, to participate in the mission of God by, mm-hmm. in, in their flourishing. Yeah. If we don't have enough asset to do that, um, why don't we have it? Well, you know, I guess um, it could be a responsibility on the part of some, I suppose, but it could also be under investment on the part of those who have used their ministers uh, in a way that does not serve their future. Yeah. One of the things we've... Um... We will be exploring more, but um, have identified is that retirement can be kind of one of these psychological um, concerns. There can be anxiety around uh, retirement that causes what you described as ministers, you know, preaching into a time when maybe they aren't of uh, Mm -hmm. maybe shouldn't be. You know, I I can think of at least one or two churches that I know uh, locally here in the Northwest. Uh, to where I know it's a practical reason, very practical reason that the minister is still in the pulpit and um, for good and ill of the congregation. And, and most of the time at this last decade, it's been not not benefit. Um, so I wonder, as as you're talking about this new 
economic ethic that we're not just talking about the need, the basic need of shelter, you know, the Maslow's hierarchy, right? We're, we're not just talking about food and shelter, but we're actually talking also about caring for the psychological needs of our ministers so that they can serve into God's calling in their life, flourishing, as you're talking about, flourishing, not just of them, but of their congregation. If we continue to have ministers full of anxiety, um, they are no longer witnessing to the non-anxious presence, I think, mm. of Jesus in mm-hmm. the congregation. That's good. That's good. So I think the retirement need can also be reframed not just as a basic needs of shelter and food, but also as a psychological need with as we think about the the role of the minister, the role of the evangelist, even in the community, to speak to yeah. people's um hearts and, and minds and, and they can't do that as effectively if they're anxious about their children going to college or anxious about uh, what will how will they provide for their wife um, as she deals with dementia or you know like I can think of pastors I know who are who are driven to anxiety maybe even to stay in ministry beyond when they could um, and this goes to a conversation we we had in the first episode a little bit about burnout and some of these things Um that the church is actually impoverishing ministers and, and causing them to stay in unhealthy situations because mm-hmm. of their retirement anxiety and the psychological need there. So I, I like your framing of the need. Everyone has what they need. Um, mm-hmm. I just wonder if we need to define that even further. What sure. are the needs of the soul? Um, and could retirement absolutely. be part of that? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I totally I totally take your point, and I think that that's right on target. When we're, we want to define the need, and the need includes uh, mental health. Mm. You know, I definitely not only physical health, medical issues, uh, food, shelter, clothing, uh, but, but also mental health. Right. Need. What I what I mean by need is our needs are supplied in such a way that we can flourish. Where our needs are supplied in such a way that we can have a healthy participation in the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Now, if I'm filled with anxiety, then I can't have a healthy participation in the kingdom of God. And so, if churches are going to serve their ministers, if they're going to ask their ministers to serve them, then they need to alleviate that anxiety. So that they can have healthy ministers serving the community rather than ones who are filled with a kind of a dread of the future or a sense of that. I must go on doing what I'm doing um, so I can get paid instead of thinking about if I had if I had the the church's um, service to me and the church's supplying of my need over the years. My retirement would not be an anxious moment. It would rather be a transition into a new kind of serving of the kingdom of God. So when I move into retirement, when I come into retirement a year from now, I don't plan on stop serving the kingdom. I will just serve the kingdom in a different way, Mm -hmm. um, in a way that's more conducive to my health and my age and et cetera. so that I no longer do what I was doing, but I, I now will do something uh, in the kingdom that will that is more appropriate to to my situation and my and my age and family and you know resources available. So it's not a matter of of retiring 
in the sense of quitting the mission of God. It's rather just a transition into a different sort of uh, ministry in the kingdom of God. Right. And both, I, need, I, I think uh, that the needs need to be met so that flourishing can happen. Mm-hmm. If I move in, if I'm, if I'm not able to, you know, serve in a church and my mental health is such or my uh, health is such that I can't do X, Y, and Z, mm-hmm. um, I, I need to have at least um, my need is that I would be able to flourish in the situation I am in. Right. How can I best, how can I flourish where I am? Mm-hmm. You know, even if you know, I'm, I'm terminally ill, how can I flourish where I am? You know, or, yeah. or if I have a disability, how can I flourish where I am? You know, or if I'm, you know, my memory is <laughs> losing its speed, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, how can I flourish? Right. So that's what I mean by need, the yeah. ability to flourish. You know, yeah. Do I have the resources to flourish? Yeah. And I think that that's a communal, that's a communal task. Yeah. That we provide each other with the resources to flourish. Yeah, and um, one more question, and then we'll wrap it up in terms of, you know, you mentioned flourishing, and Sherman just wrote a book called The Agents of Flourishing, and she talks about how many churches are kind of stuck in a relief-focused income supplement paradigm, food assistance, benevolence, or basically a needs-based approach to helping the poor instead of what she calls an asset-based approach to helping the poor. Mm-hmm. So if many churches are kind of stuck there struggling to make that shift to help the poor in general. Is it realistic to think churches of Christ can expand their imagination to apply this Jubilee ethic Nazareth manifesto to this retirement asset problem for pastors and everybody? Well, I would hope it's possible. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I I don't, I I don't know. I mean, this is just something community by community. It has to be discussed, but we need somebody to lay out the terrain. So that right. we know where we're looking, we know mm-hmm. what we're where we're walking, and yeah. I think that's something you're doing is you're helping us lay out the terrain a little bit. Okay. Um, and I think there is a sense in which, yeah, churches are more supplemental mm-hmm. in their focus, and mm-hmm. I think that that needs to be. There, mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong there's, with no, being there's supplemental. Not. No. As long as we're not neglecting or ignoring the longer term mm-hmm. dimensions of right. helping the poor whether it's through life skills and, you know, training or whatever, right. Uh, or the church being a, a, a place where, uh, especially in terms of ministers, we're talking about here in this context, mm-hmm. the, the church recognizes its commitment to the long term mm-hmm. for people uh, yeah. and not just the short term. Because, yeah. you know, short term over and over and over again kind of creates a sense of dependency and it can be a toxic kind of charity. Yeah. Um, uh, I can, there are immediate needs, yes, that need to be met, but we need mm-hmm. to think more long-term uh, in terms of how we relate to the poor. And I don't have the answers for that one. I don't know how exactly how it's to a, do it's that. A, you know, it's a tough one. Like every every book of theology that I've come across in terms of on money possessions, they they skim the topic of retirement. They don't really dive deep into kind of explaining how mm-hmm. we go about doing this. And that was kind of a frustrating process in terms of seeing how most just yeah. kind of skim the surface without going deep there, but it's hard. It's difficult. Yeah, it yeah. is. Yeah. yeah. Um, so wrapping up, this has been a great discussion. Uh, we've kind of hit, hit our time mark. 
Uh, what would be some parting wisdom or advice for pastors and or churches on this matter of accumulating assets for retirement? Yeah, wow. You know, I'm, I'm sitting at the end of my my journey uh, about to retire. And uh, one, don't opt out of Social Security. Just okay. don't do that. Yeah. Participate in, this is part of the communal thing. Mm-hmm. Because Social Security is not just about me. It's about the community. When I pay into Social Security, I'm helping those widows who have nothing else but Social Security. So, you know, and people will argue with me about that and, you know, say, I could do better with my money and and give more to the poor. Well, one, maybe you could. Second, maybe you wouldn't. And third, maybe you wouldn't give to the poor. You know, I, you know, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Let's, let's participate in the community in which we live. Mm -hmm. Uh, The same people who would say, we don't want to do that, or we want to do something different with our money than social security are the same people who might very well say, yeah, I'll send my son to war. Mm -hmm. Why? It's communal, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I could get on that horse and ride it for a while, but don't opt Mm -hmm. out of social security. Uh, secondly, um, secure some concrete assets like a house. I think that's, um, I think in my situation and, and, and again, I don't think of, I haven't thought about this the way y'all have, Mm -hmm. um, as long as y'all have, but, um, securing that house is, um, is not only substantial equity for, for retirement, but it also reduces your needs in retirement, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so find a way to, to, to have concrete assets in some sense, you know, the land dimension of that, as we talked about early, we need some kind of land dimension, not just capital, um, but capital still works. Mm-hmm. You know, I have an, I have an um, IRA kind of thing, um, mm-hmm. but, and I've paid into that for many years as, as an educator yeah. and that's been blessing. Mm-hmm. But again, it's, it's not enough, you know, mm-hmm. that's not enough. Social security plus this, it all depends on what needs you need to fulfill. Right. In what way do you, do you want to flourish? What kind of ministry do you want to do? How do you want to participate in the kingdom of God? Well, I want to, I want to be able to have the resources to, to participate in the kingdom in ways that, um, have an impact mm-hmm. and and retirement my saving for retirement is going to enable me to do that mm-hmm. you see if I didn't have a retirement then in uh, when I am no longer able I mean I could work myself to death and but when I'm not able to have a retirement I'm not able to work anymore and I don't have a retirement then I have no capacity to flourish and I have no capacity to continue to minister in the kingdom of God. Right. And instead of being one who is um, one who has worked in order to share, now I'll be one who is dependent upon the community. Right. And, and there's no shame in that. There's no shame in being dependent upon the community. I don't want to communicate that at all. Uh, but that's kind of what we've done to some of our ministers is we have we have treated them in such a way that they won't have any other choice but to be yeah. dependent upon the community. Yeah. And that that is a shame. Mm-hmm. The shame is on us for right. how we treat them. Yeah. 
All right. Lars, do you have any parting words, my man? I've been so appreciative of this time. And uh, as I kind of just think about our whole conversation, it's a move, right? It's an imagination that we're hoping people wake up to from just usefulness, a focus on usefulness, but to where this flourishing in the last season of our life and in retirement. And I I think um, in many ways, we might be giving permission by having the, the retirement assets in place. We might give permission to some of those uh, located ministers to become evangelists again. What we were mm-hmm. you know, doing early in the days of the circuit rider preacher. And I, and I can think of a few um, like you uh, who are going to do that and be continuing to do that. And I've already been given permission to do that maybe in some of your roles. My role has become that a little bit maybe earlier in life than I imagine where I'm getting to bless the kingdom of God more broadly because I get to be less tied down to the expectations and responsibilities of one particular congregation. And I'm serving the body of Christ in the Pacific Northwest more generally. And I wonder if that actually lives more in the ideal nature of the restoration movement and the good parts of the pattern that we were searching for. Um, And that retirement might be a key to us getting out of kind of a, a bad toxic relationship where we've uh, we're not happy with the located minister in the way that it has kind of become. And if we had retirement for them, we might actually end up with more of those ministers uh, serving the broader body of Christ in a flourishing way. And um, so, you know, at some point we've got to get on the circle and, and uh, address this, but I appreciate your, your help in, in those words of flourishing, um, mm-hmm. kind of helping us look at the ministers as not just someone we care for when they're useful to us. Um, and uh, so I appreciate you kind of giving us what I think of as the theological and scriptural um, foundation for this conversation as we continue it forward. Um, so thanks for your time today. Well, thanks for the invitation. Mm-hmm. It's been fun. Yeah, yeah, we definitely appreciate you coming on here and, and uh, sharing with us from your wealth of knowledge and your uh, the books that you have written, uh, which are many. So thank you once again, uh, John Mark, for being with us on our second episode of Almost Essential Podcast. We've got, I think, 14 more we're going to create over the next couple of months. So, But at this time, we're going to say bye, and we'll see you in episode three. Once again, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Almost Essential Podcast. If you like what you heard and you want to reach out, you can connect with me, Jordan Koss, on Facebook or Instagram. We hope this series is a valuable resource for you, pastor or otherwise. And remember, you are not almost essential. Your role and service in the church is essential, as well as saving for retirement within your holy vocation and calling.